Well, welcome to episode 94. We're up to of uh, the Professor and the Hack. Thanks for staying with us. I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington. The Professor PVO is with us. Uh, prof, um, good to have you there as always. Hey, you, you, sound, you sound like you're in the middle of a newsroom, Hugh Remington. I am I can, in the middle can, of a newsroom. I can hear the hustle and bustle. The hustle and bustle. Well, look, Studio 10 is, being, is going live to air and not ah. 20 metres from where I'm sitting in this vast open plan place that we're at at studio at uh, uh, channel 10 in Sydney. So if they suddenly burst into song or Irish dancing, um, <laughs> what can I say? I'll, I'll have to leave and dance along. Well, if they suddenly burst into song and dancing, you have to go and get your camera out because the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, as I understand it, is due on there later this morning, the time that we're actually recording this. So if he's dancing and singing, I want that in a package tonight on the news. So be sure and make sure. That, I guess there might be the odd camera there, though, uh, at Studio 10. Maybe you don't need to record it. I have to admit that I have seen uh, Albo dancing. And um, at a midwinter ball or two, and he can shake the mess around. Yeah, right. You, you, you know, wouldn't necessarily think it, but, but, you know, I'm one of those guys who, in days of old, probably was better with drink on board before I attempted dancing. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting he didn't have drink on board in an appropriate sort of a way, but uh, no, he could, he could, he could shake, shake the boogaloo or whatever the hell it is, um, and impress an impressive skill. I've got that image now in my head, and it, uh, I don't know whether that's a good thing. But anyway, there's, there's so much to talk about. For God's sake, let's not talk about elbows dancing. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Hey, look, just quickly, we remain in jobs. We're lucky. Let's just go to the unemployment figure for April before we go anywhere else, because we'd been told and told and told and told that when JobKeeper came off, there was going to be a cliff, and we're all going to tumble into it, and unemployment would spike up. Um, the cliff does not appear to have happened, which is a good thing, surely. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Labor's trying to make the point that there were job losses, which is not unsurprising in the context of the end of job keeper. But having said that, even experts on this aren't certain that those job losses correlate to the end of job keeper. And even if they do, they are at far lower numbers than what anyone anticipated. And then when you look at new jobs, even if they're part-time or even if they're insufficiently full-time uh, by nature, we still saw, as you point out, a decline in the unemployment rate. I mean, pretty extraordinary. The revised figure for the last period was 5.7 and it's now dropped to 5.5. That is only a fraction above the pre-pandemic unemployment rate. And whilst it is true that underemployment is a bigger problem now than it was before the pandemic. That is to say more people are in, you know, part-time work in a way that they would rather be in full-time work if they could get the opportunity. With those assistant plans coming off, with those, you know, top-ups, if you like, of the, for businesses to be able to fund staff allocations, the expectation was that unemployment would go north much more than it ever has or seems now likely to do. Certainly it was expected to get into double figures and significantly so in some respects. So this is really good news for the government, but let's not kid ourselves as well. It is in no small part uh, the trade-off, the positive trade-off that you get for the pile-on of debt with relatively low taxes at the same time as that. They are spending their way out of trouble. And even if JobKeeper comes off, the amount of money getting pumped into the economy means consumers are spending, government spending, business therefore is doing some spending as well. And as a result, 
the employment numbers are, are much better than anyone expected, but it's at the expense of growing debt, which future generations at some point will have to pay back. So there's kind of three tests of the government uh, in a pandemic. One is keep your people alive. Secondly, make sure that there's not a great depression, you know, cues, people with swags on their backs, walking around trying to find work. The third one is to not sink your, uh, your entire economic structure into debt. They've won spectacularly on two of those tests, and they're the tests that probably matter most uh, to the punters, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely, and particularly in the short term. So particularly as we count down to the next election, this is one of the reasons why people are increasingly coming on board with the notion that the government's in the box seat. It's got electoral issues seat by seat, state by state, uh, which make the mathematics of securing another majority hard, particularly when going for a fourth term. That's undeniable. But because of their handling of the pandemic and, and ticking two of those three boxes, as you mentioned, they're pretty well placed in the short term. It's the longer term where it becomes more interesting. I mean, again, I haven't seen too many people draw this extent of the comparison uh, to the pandemic of 1918, 1919. But, you know, there's a lot of fears of what the consequence of it would be now and, and the recession that we did have, but we quickly snapped out of it. Uh, back then, there was an economic consequence in the short term, but then you, of course, had the roaring 20s, uh, followed by the Great Depression, which is the last moment economically that this has been compared to. It's not been as bad as that. It took time. There was a real boost post-pandemic uh, back in the 1920s. Now, obviously, that was also post-World War I, uh, and so there were all sorts of reasons for the, the booming decade of the 20s before the Great Depression. But I'm now starting to wonder whether, in the genre of history repeating itself, whether it's a more elongated time frame before the appropriate comparison going back to the Great Depression. That is, this was a dead cat bounce as a comparison point. Uh, the recession that we just had immediately in the in the midst of lockdowns and the pandemic. The more interesting comparison, once again, it's the 20s. It's exactly 100 years on. It's the 20s that could well be roaring as debt fueled growth in the economy and in the global bounce back continues on until it all comes crashing down, potentially, uh, in another Great Depression debt fueled uh, sag. So we'll see. This is why they call economics the dismal science, uh, PVO. <laughs> I think political science sits slightly below it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the meantime, there's been the customary sort of selling of the budget thing going on with the Prime Minister getting out and about and the Treasurer as well. I haven't had a sense that there's been much cut through on this. So there was the, you know, the, the recognition... Uh, you know, of the on budget day and the days immediately afterwards that yes, we're now we're now into a large accumulation of debt phase as we work our way out of this. But having absorbed that, uh, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't get the sense that there is, you know, crowds of anxious people hitting the streets worrying about this stuff. The, the, the reception seems to have been muted, it would seem. Yeah, but I think that probably suits them. Yeah, I think what they're trying to do out the other side of this budget is do a bit of a, a test run on a sort of post-budget campaign style road trip. 
uh, also just to quash any fears that might otherwise come out the other side of the budget, stoked by the opposition, because that's, of course, what oppositions of all political persuasions do. So it's a bit of a so a status quo almost with a she'll be right attitude without a, a heightened worry about debt, for example, without unemployment going where people thought it might go with the end of JobKeeper. It's a chance for the, the Prime Minister to try, to try to sort of send the message, don't you know, don't don't get off this horse uh, as we continue to to trot along. You know, stick with the, the the devil you know, if you like. And I think where it might be, where, well, where there might be evidence that we're not seen at, at the you know at the national level, because I'm I'm in the same boat as you, Hugh. Maybe in those individual seats that he's visiting, that's where it's a little bit more prevalent. Uh, he's deliberately targeting Queensland, deliberately targeting some areas he has to shore up in Victoria post his Queensland endeavours. And of course, now he's heading to Tasmania where there are two very key seats that he wants to hold on to in Bass and Braddon. And he even thinks they might be able to pick up Lions as a gain at the next election. And he's heading down there and, and, you know, um, Stella from our office in the Canberra press gallery, she's on that trip with the PM as well. And we'll be talking to him one-on-one, which is great. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see what, her reflections are from that trip. And indeed, uh, I'm interested to hear with Parliament returning next week, um, whether it may be at that seat by seat level, they're seeing something that you and I aren't seeing. And I think most people aren't seeing uh, at the national level. It's interesting how Tasmania has become such a key to the national uh, uh, game, I suppose, particularly uh, on these very tight elections. On, um, on the subject of budgets, Victoria has handed down its budget and uh, there's some interesting national politics in this for one thing they've put uh, a, a surcharge onto payroll taxes on businesses to fund fundamentally a mental health levy to you know victorians had a very hard time of 2020 um it, it's an interesting move uh, and has been immediately leapt on by josh Frydenberg saying, you know, whether it's state or federal labor, they'll always increase your taxes because they've got higher spending they need to, f- uh, to fund. Uh, and business is saying this is a tax on jobs because it's taxing employers at a time when probably the best thing for people's mental health is to have a job and to feel secure in that employment. What, what do you think might be the shockwaves of that budget as it goes through both the national scene and also those seats in Victoria? Well, it's certainly provides the narrative that Scott Morrison wants as a partisan comparative point between his government and Labor, doesn't it? Because increasing payroll tax, even to pay for something virtuous like mental health spending, it's still a tax increase, an impost on business. It's all the things that the scaremongering attempts that you get federally about what a Labor government might look like or do uh, manifesting itself in one state and in a key state in Victoria as well. Uh, where there's, you know, I mean, every state's a key state to some extent, but there are seats there that the government thought it would lose substantially the last election that it held on to that it needs to hold on to again. But payroll tax is the most regressive, other than gambling taxes, frankly, of state-based taxes, and it's a real impost on business. You are essentially taxing employment with payroll tax. I mean, quite literally, Hugh, you are putting a tax on a business each individual time it chooses to hire a new person via the payroll tax. So it's already a stifling tax from a business perspective. It's already one that's often been slated if there was to ever be wider tax reform, a tax that should be abolished and replaced with with a different suite of tax structures uh, to get rid of the regressive nature of it and the impost it is on business. So to only increase it 
particularly at a time like this in the pandemic, particularly in a state like Victoria, which has been more hard hit by the pandemic because of that second wave and lockdown and all the deaths attached to it than any other state has been. It is exactly, whether it's right or wrong, whether you think it's necessary or not, whether you think it's virtuous or not, it is exactly the sort of tax structure by that Victorian Labor government that someone like Josh Frydenberg or someone like Scott Morrison would politically be very happy to see because it gives them a real sense of ammunition uh, to attack federal labour with. You can see an advertisement, can't you? You can see it sitting there, labour, boom, taxes, your jobs, the, you know, the, the, the job-crushing tax of the Labour Party, all this sort of stuff that can work federally or work within the Victorian context into a federal election. So, um, you know, I'm sure that uh, Tim Pallas of Victorian treasurer can make his arguments about it, but uh, boy, oh boy, it's uh, it seems uh, you know Anthony Albanese's <laughs> probably not most delighted that that's the way they've decided to go. Uh, we've got a few things to talk about: this vaccine rollouts and that sudden difficulty in in managing to get the numbers up, especially for the AstraZeneca. And let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, this is Gillian Bowen, and I host 10 Speaks' latest podcast, Making Money Easy. Each week, I talk to different economists and financial experts to make sense of global trends and local economics to make the world of finance more accessible to you at home. We'll literally be making money easy, coming soon on the 10 Speaks homepage or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to episode 94 of The Professor and the Hack. Vaccines, uh, PVO. I'm off to get my shot uh, today, the AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca uh, shot at lunchtime today, if I can get across town. You've given away your age, Hugh Rimmington. I just assumed you were under 50. Indeed. God bless you, sir, and all that run with you. <laughs> <laughs> we've, uh, we've had two horrible images we've put out there. One is elbow dancing, and the other is, is, is my wizened arm being proffered up to get jabbed. But, you know, there seems to be a mess of messages, and it seems to be having a really genuine deleterious effect now on vaccine take-ups, particularly with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it's confusing because this is the prime minister who's, of course, Scotty from marketing. And, and if there was one administration in, in Australian history that you would think would have skills at the top to get out a marketing message to get us vaccinated, um, this would be the one. But instead, we're seeing increasing vaccine you know, hesitancy, caution, you know, in some ways, just plain apathy, a sign that particularly those over 50 who have got the AstraZeneca as their option are kind of thinking, well, you know, I could hang around somewhere down the track, maybe another thing will come along. Is this a problem for the government? I think it's a huge problem for the government. Uh, I think they have mishandled a lot of elements of the vaccine rollout and advertising blitz and stoking or the, the need to stoke public confidence rather than the other way around. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of it has been a consequence where they've been a, a victim of their own success. Because we've done so well managing the pandemic, that has had its own flow-on effect to us not, as a consequence to some extent, doing well managing the vaccine rollout. But it can't all be explained away 
in that dichotomy. Far, far from it. I've actually written my column in The Weekend Australian about this very issue of the vaccine rollout and just how important it is. Because I think a lot of, I mean, people intuitively know this, but it's it's now, this is how critical I think it is. The, the flu, the comparisons between the flu and COVID-19 during the height of the pandemic pre-vaccine were, you know, put out there by utter morons trying to make ideological points with no medical knowledge when the compa- when the comparison was a completely illegitimate one and it was you know it was a false equivalence of the extreme okay this is the argument this this pandemic is just the flu what's the fuss exactly and it was just so moronic that it almost doesn't deserve attention except that there were a lot of these morons with microphones who were spruiking that and writing about it you name it now however I'm almost loath to to say this because it's completely different to their point. But now, once you are vaccinated, properly vaccinated, both jabs, it is medically accurate, even though understandably doctors don't want to put it this way. It's medically accurate to say that there becomes a comparison point that you fully vaccinated from COVID are basically as safe from COVID as a person is from from the flu. Uh, and that's because the numbers change. You are very unlikely to get seriously ill if you get COVID once vaccinated, and you are infinitesimally unlikely to die from it once vaccinated. And you're also less likely to get it in the first place, but it, but these are the even if you do get it phenomena. So the point is, it is so important that two things happen. At, at the at the mass level, it's so important that we get something resembling herd immunity. And what that really means is as long as you have 80 plus percent of the population, and really it needs to be higher than that, but if you have 80 plus percent of the population, that's what Gladys Berejiklian's talked about shooting for, who have had the jab, both jabs, then that bulk of the population, four out of five people, are firstly less likely to even get COVID. If they do get it, they won't get super sick. And if even if they do get super sick, they won't die from it. And the numbers become so small that it does become similar to the flu. Now, there's also the individual level, though, which that means it's less likely to spread and be serious and put a strain on the hospital system. But it's also, you also have to be mindful that if one in five people haven't had it, that those people, the numbers are just as bad as they are at any point during the pandemic in terms of risks to their health. Uh, if they do get COVID. They're a little bit less likely to get it because four out of five people have got the jab and are unlikely to be catching COVID. But if they get it, they're every bit as at risk as anyone was in any part of the world at the height of the pandemic. And so getting the country fully vaccinated becomes crucial because this is the bit that pollies don't really want to talk about. Once you're fully vaccinated as a nation, the only option at that point does become to open up. And that's where the let it rip mentality becomes, whether we like it or not, the reality that countries have to accept. Once we are fully vaccinated to COVID or at whatever that percentage of herd immunity looks like, that is the time that you just say, you know what? If COVID runs through the community now, it's like a bad flu season. It genuinely becomes like a bad flu season. But that's not the case for individuals who are anti-vaxxers who don't get vaccinated. And that is not the case for millions of voters if we still have low vaccination rates because of hesitancy around small percentages, around blood clotting, around things like AstraZeneca. So it is so important that vaccine rollouts continue if we want to open up the country and if we want to avoid the risk 
the, the virus gets in unexpectedly before we open up the country. But there is no alternative here. The Fortress Australia for years to come without opening things up is not a realistic option. So we need to get vaccinated as quickly as possible to reduce the economic harm, which I think is at about $200 million a day, according to the McKell Institute, the economic impact of us being shut down. And once we do open up, like it or not, vaccine, uh, like it or not, in a fully vaccinated country, COVID will run through the country, but fingers crossed, it won't be any different. In fact, it'll be a little bit less bad uh, than, a, than a difficult flu season. It is funny, isn't it? When you, when you put ourselves back, you don't have to go far, that far back. It's eight months or so when it was galloping in the United States, when it was going through Britain, uh, other parts of the world, we saw Italy and everything. Everyone was hanging out for this vaccine, which was, you know, please can all these geniuses in their white coats come up with a vaccine and save us from this thing. And, and so they've arrived with it. <laughs> so many people go, yeah, well, you know, meh. Um, you know, I don't care anymore. You know, I'm not afraid. Fear has disappeared. But as we've seen in other jurisdictions that have done well, including India, which thought it was doing well, places like Taiwan, which has got a new outbreak, which seemed to have handled it so well. Um, you know, it, it is, you know, but Taiwan didn't vaccinate. They thought they'd managed it by other means. Exactly. We've, exactly. Yeah, we've got to get all that going. Now, um, Overseas, let's have a quick look. We've seen something of uh, Joe, uh, Joe Biden in his uh, efforts to uh, bring an end to the latest uh, flare-up between um, uh, Israel and Hamas-controlled Gaza. Uh, finally, a ceasefire. Uh, there's no resolution, though, in what has emerged out of the ceasefire there's nothing at all that brings us a path forward so i guess we're going to settle in in the next little while and say there's going to be more of this coming oh yeah of course there is i mean the arab israeli conflict you know is the is is you know the, the sort of one of the defining um sad features of the post world war ii um you know globe i suppose uh, over that 60 plus years oh, it's funny actually Hugh. i was trying to i used to teach uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict um, for my sins uh, when I was a full-time university lecturer. It was one of the courses that that I did, uh, and it's not my area of study, but obviously I have studied it and then researched it to, to do the teaching of those second and third-year students on it. But uh, it's a different prospect trying to explain it to a 14-year-old, which was where I found myself last night. You know, my oldest daughter, Sasha, uh, obviously has learned a little bit about this at school and has talked to different students at her school about it as well. And she came to me uh, you know, when I was cooking dinner last night asking about it. Uh, and I tell you what, getting your head around trying to give a really objective assessment uh, of how they got to where they are as well as what prospect there is in any positive sense going forward and then tailor it to a 14-year-old's understanding uh, trying to leave it as open-ended for her to make her judgments one way or the other uh, it's not easy. It's a real, you know, it's it's just what it, it's an intractable problem for me. Even though I think that Israel's response uh, is entirely disproportionate, I also recognise uh, the the you know the Hamas, uh, you know the, the 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 unprovoked at times Hamas attacks prior to the disproportionate response. But I understand those unprovoked attacks because. The word unprovoked of itself is not objective because they would say that the nature of the occupation and the lack of independence uh, and you name it is, is, is its own issue, which of course it is, which takes us right back to the founding of Israel and stomping on the ground of the Palestinians. It's just, 
this is just something that I, I I look at and I don't see any way forward other than the occasional wonderful short-term ceasefire moments before it breaks out again at some point. I fear you're right on all of that. And the interesting thing about this is we're still learning what Biden's going to be like as a president. We know that he's different from Trump in almost every way. Mm. But it has shown again some of the limits, you know, the limits of uh, American influence, allowing for the fact there is still a normal, enormous soft power capacity within the United States. But it took four uh, one-on-one phone calls between Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu before Netanyahu, um, you know, I think he'd done the damage that he wanted to do to Hamas, degrade their their um, their tunnel systems and, and their weapons and kill some militants and so on. And then you go, okay, that's enough. Um, but uh, you look at Biden, he's trying to uh, bring an end to that in a, in a timely fashion. He's also got this big ambition to reset uh, global climate policy. And yet uh, you, you can see both that he can have an influence, but that it's not always on the timetable that he wants. And that that is really, I think, where America is going to be um, you know, more in this much more multipolar world. Uh, but but he's in the game and he's he's doing what he can. Yeah, I mean, look, he's trying, um, but you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. The, you know, the, the limits of American power and influence are becoming more and more apparent, which is not to say that the American century is coming to an end. I don't think it is. I agree with Joseph Nye about that, you know, and he wrote pre-Trump about this, but he talked about the fact that the American dominance in this century will most likely continue at least till the halfway mark and then we'll see where we're at. And he goes through his reasons why. It's quite an interesting short book, so uh, a nice easy read. But he also acknowledges, which I think we've seen play out since he originally wrote this, that all those features you talk about, Hugh, of a multipolar world coupled with the rise of China are, if you like, bringing American power and influence back uh, in a sense to where it was uh, pre the end of the Cold War uh, and then back even further than that to some extent because of the testing ground that has shown the limits of American power and influence that we've seen more recently. Uh, And that's one of the issues. I mean, Israel is a classic example. Uh, You know, Netanyahu has taken the time to get done what he wanted to get done before giving Biden a win would be the way to put it. Uh, But, you know, that might be a political win for both of them, but it certainly isn't a win for anyone in the midst of, um, of what's going on over there. For sure. Well, um, we'll doubtless talk before our careers is over, uh, are over uh, about another uh, flare up there in the Middle East. It's a sad, sad cycle there. But look, uh, PVO, uh, good to talk to you as always. Have a great weekend. We've, of course, got the Upper Hunter uh, by-election coming up in New South Wales this weekend, which uh, is going to have implications certainly for the Berejiklian government. If the National Party loses that, it has within the New South Wales state politics difficulties for Jodie McKay if she... Uh, uh, her leadership, which is coming under increasing question, uh, does she have to cut through, you know, to to score points against the Berejiklian government? But if Labor does particularly poorly, uh, that will, um, you know, that'll be a difficulty for Labor. So, so much at stake in a in a modest little by election uh, coming up this weekend. Um, you stay well, Peter, and we'll talk next week. You too, Hugh, and that'll be at the end of a federal sitting week. So we'll see what the implications of all of that are by the end of that. For sure. But that's if I'm okay after my jab. Yeah, good luck. Good luck. Thanks, dude. See you, buddy. 
You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.